You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Verses 1 through 2, and if you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here, Uh, especially if it's your first time. I want to say thank you for making us a part of your week. Uh, As Lauren said, we just got back from the men's retreat. So guys, hopefully you got a little bit of sleep. I see a lot more of you here at the 1045, which makes sense. And uh, we had a good time. It was really enjoyable. Um, and uh, hopefully, if, if you didn't get a chance to make it out this year, guys, I would really encourage you to uh, check it out next year. It's, just, it's, a, it's always a great time to get away. Uh, and we'll try to keep you from falling off of the roof. But no promises. So like Lauren said, we're, we're kicking off a series in the book of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 this week. Uh, and like last year, you know, we, when we preached through... Uh, Portions of scripture expositionally. Uh, last year, like we went through the book of First John, and we take uh, larger sections of scripture, and so it's uh, eight, nine, ten verses, maybe sometimes even more than that, and try to kind of walk with the, with you uh, line by line, verse by verse. And, and this year, we wanted to do a a portion of text, uh, and and maybe tease it out a little bit more, and maybe have a little less scriptures that we're working with, as you can see, just two verses this morning. Uh, and spend a lot more time kind of getting at the, the heart and principle uh, that's, that's there. I want to say this. Uh, there might be times in this series where we, like, like I think next week, we actually carry, cover a little bit more, uh, a little longer, uh, more verses in a, in a subheading. But for the most part, we want to spend a little bit more time kind of diving in. And, and there's reasons for that. Uh, but before I jump into that, what I'd like to do is just pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through the truth of his word. As he has promised to do, I really just want to pray for you and for me that we would submit ourselves uh, underneath his word that we might have ears to hear. So if you'll bow your heads with me, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you that there's clarity to your word. Thank you that you've preserved your word over thousands of years so that we might sit and stand here today and read it in our own language. God, that you are so um, vastly amazing and holy and complex, and yet you have chosen to communicate clearly to us in your word who you are, and you've chosen to do that in your, in your mercy, and so we just we thank you for the word, Lord, the gift that the word is. Forgive us when we take it lightly. And this morning, it's our prayer, God, that you just give us ears to hear. Um, help us to to truly long to submit to your word. And where we want to push back, Lord, would you lovingly remind us that you are out for our good and that you care for us as your children. And we ask also that we be able to not be hearers only, but also doers of your word, that our lives might be shaped by the truth we find here. Holy Spirit, thank you that you are present with us and in us to encourage this work, to help to teach us so we don't have to rely on ourselves. 
Thank you so much. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm, I'm convinced that you can gain a, a bulk of the biblical worldview from the first three chapters of the Bible. Now, I have to be, to be fair and to be honest. I, I also think that I, and maybe this is a pastoral thing, maybe it's just a, a unique thing to my personality. I would like for, to be able to say you could understand the whole Bible with the first three chapters, and let's just talk about it. Because uh, I like the idea of that simplicity. I don't think you can get all of the complexities of the Christian faith in three chapters, but I do believe you can get the blueprints. You can get the main ideas of what it means to see the world as God has called us to see the world in the first three chapters of the Bible. And I don't think that it's coincidental that God designed it that way. I think that the, the book of Genesis starts the way that it does because it answers a lot of our most profound questions. And I also think that as it answers most of our profound questions, it also opens us up to ask even more. And in that way, I think what God does is he draws us into the rest of the story. So he answers a lot of our most profound questions, and then he brings up all these others and then says, well, come along with me and let me teach you. Let me show you. But there's so many essential and foundational things that we get from the first three chapters that I think also most of the controversial cultural issues of our time are answered by these first three chapters and that they can be even offensive. I, I, I think that that's not a reason that we should shy away from the Bible. I actually think that's a reason we should trust the Bible because the Bible's not interested in flattering us. The Bible's just interested in telling us the truth. It's kind of like your grandparents like, they're so sweet, but then they get to an age where they just don't care. So they just tell you exactly, like, you, I walked into my nanny's house, and she's the sweetest person. Like, oh, you've gained weight. And I said, oh, man. But here's the thing. I know she's telling the truth. Here's why she doesn't care. She doesn't care if I, if I got upset about it or if I was frustrated. She's like, I'm 90 years old. Do what you want. You're fatter. You know? And so I think that we can trust the Bible because the Bible's this unchangeable document, this unchangeable truth that just doesn't mind offending us. Uh, and I don't think that the Bible doesn't mind offending us because God is mean. I think the Bible doesn't mind offending us because God truly loves us, and sometimes love has to challenge those things that can seem most offensive. That true love has to tell us the honesty, the honest confrontational truth about ourselves that sometimes we're unwilling to confront. Now, I want to say, I do also think that the primary goal of our series should not be just cultural commentary. The church should be a prophetic voice into the culture, but the church's primary goal as we gather together as the saints on Sunday morning is not to run a cultural commentary, but instead to submit ourselves under the truth of God's word so that we can be changed and become a light under the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. It's not primarily to be aiming out at the culture. It's primarily, as we pray to start, for God to begin to do work here. So I want us mostly to be looking in the mirror, not turning a mirror on other people, you know? When I did student ministry, I used to call it, it's ironic now that my, I'm going to, uh, well, we're going to name our daughter this name, but I used to call it the Jane Principle. And by that, I mean many times we listen to sermons and we always think, ooh, I wish Jane were here to hear that. Jane being just a random, right? John Doe or Jane Doe. Oh, if Jane were just here, then she'd really be changed. Oh, that would be good for Jane. And I want us to say, it's, is it good for you? Because if you're just thinking about who it would be good for on your Twitter feed to hear this, you're going to miss what the Lord is up to in the midst of his body. 
Namely, that he might challenge our preconceived notions. He might challenge our lack of understanding. And he might actually challenge what we say we believe versus how we actually obey and walk it out. So I want us to turn in and, and I want to ask uh, two major questions of the text. And I get these two major questions just really from like biblical hermeneutics or understanding of the Bible. But we had a breakout for our men's retreat at four breakouts and they went really well. I just want to encourage all the other lead. I didn't lead one of them. Uh, our staff didn't, I don't even think, led one of them, and the men of our church just did a fantastic job. But one was led by uh, Alex Rollo and, and Eric Ripley, and it was about reading the Bible. And I overheard Alex talking about when you read every text, you need to at least, he had a lot more questions, but the one that I overheard was at least ask the question of the Bible, what does it say about God? And then what is it telling, what is who, how is who God is shaping who, how we view ourselves or who we are, how we see life? What is this text teaching us about how we ought to view our families or our spouses or our work or our environment or, you know, you fill in the blank, right? And I want to do that as we read through the book of Genesis to think through how, how is this teaching me about who God is and also how is that affecting my view of who I am in light of that? Now, I also believe that it matters greatly what we believe about the Bible to start. And so I read this poem and I want to read it to you. I don't have it to put on the screen, so you just have to kind of close your eyes and listen, but I don't know who, who authored this poem. I, just, I read it, and I thought, man, this is really good. Uh, and it's about the Word of God. It says this. Last eve, I paused before a blacksmith's door, and I heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. And looking in, hammers filled the floor. They were worn by the beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter these hammers so? Just one, said he, with a twinkle in his eyes, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. Consider then the anvil of God's word, for ages the skeptics have beat upon. The noise of falling blows was heard, but the anvil remains and the hammers are gone. I want to commend to you this morning that God's word has remained for thousands of years because it has been preserved by our loving creator and father who, who looks to reveal himself to us and is intent upon doing so. It's not coincidental that we have the Bible. Many have spilled their blood that we might have it today. Many have fought that we might have it today. And it's because the truth of God's word is the anvil upon which we fall so that we can be molded, so we can be shaped, so we can be ministered to by the great refiner. I want to commend to you God's word because in order for you to know what the good life is, you have to look to God. In order for you to know why you exist, you have to look to God. In order to, for you to know how you ought to live, you have to look to God. And in order, to you, in order for you to live a life worth living, you have to look to God. And if we are to look to him, I, I would say that we have no better place to look than here in his word. And so, in light of that, I want, to, I want to turn to the first two verses of your Bible and spend some time in there and maybe ask the questions, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about us? Verse 1, in the beginning, God. In, this is how the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Bible starts with, in the beginning, God, because the Bible wants us to 
first, out of the gates, initially, preeminently understand this is a book about God. And that before anything was, there was him. Before there was any time, any matter, any space, there was God. Eternally existing, self-sufficiently, not dependent upon anything or any person, there was God. Now, this is essential. That might seem like, okay, move on. It is essential for us to understand the rest of the Bible. That there are not many gods. There is but one God. There's a God who stands alone, the self-existent one. And that this God created everything, what some, comment, or some theologians call ex nihilo, or out of nothing came something. That's how our God created the universe. He is entirely apart from his creation and yet engaged in creating them. So he's imminent with his creation. Unlike pantheism where God is the universe and the universe is God, we have a God who stood alone before the universe was ever created and spoke it into existence. Or as the Bible says, that when Jesus stands in Revelation, he calls himself the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not saying that I had a starting point and I have an end point. It's his way of communicating. I have always been, or as Moses heard from God when he asked him his name, I am who I am. Or the, the Hebrew language, actually, it, it may, might be translated, I be who I be. I just kind of thug life, and I appreciate that. I will be who I will be. Revelation goes on to say, the ancient of days, the one who was and who is and who is to come, that God's this, he's the only constant, always been. I wanted to read Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, because it mirrors this. So the start of the book says that this is the God who was and has always been. Listen to what it ends with in Revelation. This is a scene from the book of Revelation as the angels and the heavenly host and the elders are around the throne and they are worshiping our God. They say this, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will they existed and they were created. How was everything made? By the will and counsel of a self-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Not because he needed creation for fellowship, but because he loved the idea of creating. Out of grace, he didn't need us, but he wanted us. How amazing is that? That our God was always and will ever be self-sufficient, and yet out of his grace, he wants you and me. It's interesting. It's not just interesting, it's awe-inspiring. And here's the thing, even philosophers and a lot of scientists have tried to figure out the nature and cause of the universe. One of them that's very famous is Aristotle. Um, and, and he would, in his uh, theories of motion and thinking through all of life and matter and studying it, he, you know, he, he, he's kind of the, the origins, or at least one of the origins of thinking through things like a mat, uh, an object that is in motion will stay in motion until it's acted upon by an outside force. You know, he's thinking through all of this stuff that he looks at the universe and it's all in motion and, and, it's, and, and he realized that everything had a cause and then it would be an effect. And so he keeps kind of going back and naturally you can get where he's going, right? If everything has a cause and then an effect, well, when was the first cause? And it just racked his brain so much so that he came up with a title of this other being, and he even used it in the plural sense, but this other being called the unmoved mover. And here's what he says. This is from Aristotle. It is clear then that there is neither place nor void nor time outside the heaven. Hence, whatever is there, so he's acknowledging there's something there, 
is of such a nature as not to occupy any place, nor does time age it, nor is there any change in any of the things which lie beyond the outermost motion. They continue through their duration unalterable and unmodified, living the best and most self-sufficient of lives. From the fulfillment of the whole heaven, they derive their being and life or derive the being and life which other things, some more or less articulately, but others feebly enjoy. Let me give you layman's terms. He says, outside of heaven, time, and space, there's this thing. And every one of us that are still in time and space, we derive our being, whether really enjoyable or a little enjoyable, from that. And that that thing, whatever it is, exists. He couldn't find another way to explain the universe other than saying that there had to be an unmoved mover, something that's moving everything. Something's pushing and that they don't have a start. They're the, they're the unmoved one. Or later on, they'd be called the uncaused causer. What is the cause that leads to an effect? The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 and 1 that he has a name. That our God is the uncaused causer. He's the unmoved mover. Now, I, I put together seven takeaways from these first two verses that I want to kind of roll through. And uh, I say this because... I, what is it telling us about our God? Just these first two verses. If it's truly the blueprints, what do we need to gain from it? And I have a few of them. The first one is, there is only one God. Now, this is essential. Later on, you're going to get God telling the children of Israel, uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And in the midst of a pagan society that has many gods, and that their understanding of the way these pagan societies will understand the way in which the world was created was through chaos. These gods had a bunch of fights and you know, one God would swing at another God and miss, boom, that's how a valley is created. And then, you know, I'm going to swing here, uppercut, boom, that's how mountains are created. It's just these gods, these titans of the universe, and that's how the world was made. And our God says, no, it wasn't chaotic that our God spoke into the void and there was. And he didn't do so out of this idea of power will end up, I'll exert my power, and then, as evolution states, power will just continue to build upon itself. The most powerful will survive, but instead our God exerts his power and out of love he creates everything. Desire to love the world. And there's only one God. He stands alone. Number two, God is relational. Now this is interesting. You have to actually understand the language of Hebrew to kind of get to this. And listen, I am no Hebrew scholar, but uh, this is something that you find in this text, and Jewish scholars for years were really frustrated with it. You can imagine why, because they deny the Messiah. But, you know, they were really frustrated with this text, and here's why. Uh, the word for God, Adonai, is used in the plural sense here. So, hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. Adonai means plural God, and yet it's used both plural and singular in one verse. Why? Well, as Christians, we know because we serve a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Spirit, three unique persons, all one God. The Lord your God is one, and he, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's a mystery, right? Some of you are like, what? I agree. <laughs> Give it time. The Bible just keeps doing it. But right here, some commentators even say it like this. In the first two verses, you get the whole Trinity because Jesus calls himself the beginning so check this out. In the Son, the beginning, God the Father created the heavens and the earth. And what? The Spirit of God hovered on the face of the waters. You get this Trinitarian God from the very jump, the very first two verses. Check it out. 20 ver 24 verses later, you're going to get God saying, let us make man in our image. Well, who's us? Us being Father, Son, and Spirit. Made in God's 
triune image. Now, why do I say that that means God is relational? It means that prior to there ever being a time or a space or matter, we have a God who interacted with himself relationally. The Father loving the Son. Eventually, he would be sending the Son. The Son loving the Spirit and sending the Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifying the Father. And that there's this constant uh, loving, caring relationship amongst the Trinity, amongst God himself. C.S. Lewis called this the dance, that there's this constant love in the Godhead, that God never was one day just lonely and tired of it and then said we should create man. Because if that's the case, we've really messed it up. (laughs) We weren't that great of friends. Instead, that we have this God who's been relational since the beginning. And so, hey, why is that important? Because that means that we have a God, listen, that wants to relate to you. Wants a relationship with you. The whole Bible won't make sense if you don't get that. Because you might think, why? Why all of these things? Why Jesus? Why He wants a relationship with us. That's why you were created. Not he needs it. He wants it. Okay, number three. Uh, and this is two actually in one, but God is living and active. So three and four. So we don't get the picture that God is just like cranking this stopwatch and then slinging it all into existence and saying, I'll be back when it ends. No, he's a living and active God. We're going to get throughout the whole first chapter that God is creating, and his creativity is just displayed everywhere, the trees and the stars and the light and the day and all of these things. He's creating all of it, and he's active in this creation. And this is important because we must know that God is near. He's near to us. It's not. uh, Many of us may have fallen into Christian deism. It's probably why we struggle to pray. It's because we think that God stands on the other side of Mars and just kind of observes You know, we picture him as more of a Gandalf figure that just stands back and only intervenes when it's absolutely essential versus a God who's living and active. And that's what we get in the story of the Bible, right? That he's actually involved in all of this. God showing up and telling Noah, build a boat when there's never been any rain. God showing up and saying, Abram, leave your country and your kinsmen and go from Ur into this place that I'll send you. God showing up and meeting with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph showing up and meeting with Moses in a burning bush, showing up and meeting Samson's mother in a field, showing up and meeting with David, showing up and meeting Moses in the tent and speaking with him like a friend. That's the God that we get from the Bible. But we get it from the first two verses, that he's living and active and engaged with the creation. He's not standing afar. And many of us, out of fear, we want to believe that God isn't that way because we're scared of what he might say if he were near to us. And I want to encourage you that the gospel is that Jesus came near. God came near to us in the man Jesus Christ so that he might communicate to us his love and what he was willing to do to bring us even nearer. Two more. God is independent and he's holy. So he's totally separate and he's totally good. Like I said earlier, like you guys remember Avatar where you're like the blue people jump on these animals and then like their tails connect you know, and they're like flying around and now, you know, there's like a source of energy. God is everything. Now, I know that that we kind of giggle at that, but I will say like, that's kind of like new age spirituality, right? Where God is the universe, you know, we are God. And it's just this, there's just this big pot of God stew that we're all living in. And, and the Bible says, no, you have God who created everything else. So he's engaged in creation, but he is totally independent and holy of it which means that only God can stand apart from creation and begin to call the shots, or hey, listen to this, or drop the blueprints of your life. Only God can define what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is right, because he stands apart from it. The idea of God's holiness, as Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, 
you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name, set apart is your name. This idea of God's holiness is essential for the Christian because we need a God who stands apart so that we might have an anchor to look to, so that we might have a source, we might have an anchor point for our very, very tumultuous lives. But we also, in understanding God's holiness, we find a God who engages with us in Jesus Christ, that that holiness comes down and he he does what? He eats with sinners, eats with tax collectors. The Pharisees were just grossed out by it. And then Jesus was like, if you only knew who I was, you would be even more grossed out that I'd be here. But our God was willing. And then finally, and the one that I want to camp out in before we close is this, our God is a powerful and sovereign king over all things. You know, so we, we call Providence Community Church. What does providence mean? The providence of God is God's divine superintendence of all things, that we believe at providence that, that God oversees everything, that he sits on a throne and does what pleases him. And it just so happens that it pleases our God to do good to people like you and me. And he's ruthlessly committed to doing good for us and that that brings him glory. So much so that he's willing to tell us the truth like my grandmother. So much so that he's willing to take the penalty for us. This is the God that we're going to get fleshed out as we read more of the book. But this tells us that that God creates out of complete sovereign control of all things. I want to say this. There is no cosmic battle between God and Satan like is depicted in movies. Like, I want you to catch this, and some of you will get it. Uh, There is no celebrity death match between God and the devil. You guys remember celebrity death match? If not, it's okay. I don't remember it either, but there is not, that's not happening, you know? You turn on the exorcist, and you know, the, the priest gets called in to do the exorcism, and you already know what's coming. You're like, oh, no, this is going bad for this guy. Because you know the demons are just going to whip this guy up, right? I don't want you guys to picture that in the end there's a standoff between the devil and Jesus, and there's going to be a real wrestling match. Hear me on this. The Bible says there is a cosmic battle between good and evil, but our God created Satan. He's an angel that's been created that rebelled. He does not have equal pairing with our God. If our God wanted to, he could snap, and like Thanos, he would end him. But in his divine wisdom, he has chosen that he might keep him around for his glory and our good. Satan's a pawn, and listen to me, this makes him most mad. And in fact, I probably incur a lot of his attacks by saying this. He's a pawn in the game of the Holy One, and he hates it. He has been leveraged, even in the cross of Christ, when he put it in the heart of Judas to kill Jesus, he was leveraged to save you and me, and he hates it. He hates the scorn that he's the one who did what needed to be done that we might be saved. He hates it. There's no cosmic battle in which these two are paired at odds, and we're just hoping that Jesus prevails. He already has prevailed. And Genesis starts this way because it wants you to understand we have a God who sits in the heavens, and he does whatever pleases him. Glory, honor, and power will be given to this God, always, forever. And also, the Bible starts the way it does because the Bible's a book about God. Now, I know this is a shocker, and I'm not trying to be mean or stodgy. Listen to me. It's not about you. If you go into reading the Bible hoping that you'll find a book about you, you'll be so disappointed. If you go to the Bible for the Bible to only affirm and encourage what you already want, you'll be discouraged. If you go to the Bible to find some God that'll join up with your vision of the world, your purposes in the world, you're going to have to do a lot of editing. I always love the story. I can't remember if it's Thomas Jefferson or one of our founding fathers that they literally just would cut out parts of the Bible they didn't like. 
So their Bible is just full of like little gaping pages, you know? And far be it for me to like trash these guys are probably way more virtuous than I would ever be. But listen, we can't live our lives just cutting out areas of the Bible that we don't like and buffeting it. But the only way that we refrain from doing so is to acknowledge the Bible's not about us, it's about him. Listen, if there is someone that needs to bend in order to come into congruence with what is right, it's not God, it's us. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. We have a designer with blueprints. He's made it a certain way. And if there is someone who needs to be changed to come into conformity, it is not the God of the universe who spoke it into existence. It's me and it's you. If you read something in the Bible and you're like, that can't be true, I just want to tell you, one of two things is true. Either A, you're not, you're not hearing it or perceiving it as it is, so you're not actually seeing it with the right eyes, or B, it's you that needs to change, not God. And listen, both of those can be true, right? Like I use this in the 9 a.m., but like uh, the, uh, the, the early Roman Catholic Church, you know, they, they read the Bible and thought that, that the reason, uh, or the Bible gave us the impression that the sun revolved around the earth. And Galileo comes out with this thought that, you know, he, he points to Copernicus, this Polish uh, philosopher and scientist, says, hey, you know, I don't think that's true, actually. Like the, the, the science seems to think that the sun, you know, revolves around the earth, not vice versa. And I mean, the Roman Catholic Church, using the Bible, were like, arrest him. He was under house arrest for years for saying what was true. And then over time, it kind of, you know, people were like, oh, yeah, it's kind of irrefutable. That's true. Now, listen to me on this. Was the Bible wrong? No, people were wrong. The Bible legit, is there, any, is there any better example I could have used than the sun being the center and human beings revolving around this thing called the sun? I mean, for real, it's called the sun. Malachi says the sun of righteousness will dawn on us, and it's S-U-N with a capital S. The Bible's been talking about this for a long time. We were meant to orient around God, this source of light, energy. If you take the sun away, the whole earth dies. Not just that, it's like if the sun were to burn at any different temperature, we would either freeze to death or melt. It's like two degrees. And for a long time, people used the Bible to say, no, nah, it's all about us. No, it's all about the sun. And we revolve around it. We exist because of it. And the Bible's a book about God. We exist because of him. It revolves around him. Now, you might be saying, well, why does God just need all this worship? I mean, he's just such a all into himself. You know, what a second-hander. You know, second-hander is when you get glory second-hand, right? It's like you, you're not, you know, secure enough in what you're doing. You need somebody else to tell you. You ever do that? Is that just me? Okay. <laughs> Baby, what'd you think about my sermon? <laughs> That's a second-hander, okay? People read the Bible thinking God's a second-hander. What do you guys think about me? Sing to me. Is that what God is? No. God's the central point of the Bible because you and I were literally formed to run, to exist, to find our most pleasure and joy in him. So for him to tell you that the world's all about you is for him to rob you of your deepest joys, your greatest hopes, all of your dreams, and what you were created to thrive on. It's to kill you effectively by trying to preserve your own sensibilities and really by trying to preserve your own self-exaltation. When God in the word tells us it's all about him, he does it because A, it's true, and B, it's for your good. Because if we can just jive with the fact that the world does not revolve around us, we are freed up. You know, from childhood, we don't have to be taught that the world should revolve around us. You just come, you just come right out of the womb believing that that's how it should be. From the moment you get on the playground, the moment you start playing with other kids with toys, you're like sharing, what? This is mine. It's all about me. 
I think that in our like celebrity entrenched uh, culture too, it makes it a little bit worse. Like I'm going to pick on the Kardashians. Listen, if you listen to, you watch Kardashians, do you? But you know, you watch the Kardashians and and here's the thing. They're, They're millionaires with lives that legitimately are just all about, like it revolves around them, right? It's called reality TV. It's the most unreality I've ever seen, but it's, and so here's the thing. We try to pattern our life, our decision-making, even our looks around this family. And here's the thing. That's not real life. Like, if you were just to take assessment for a second and think through, what has, the, what has the entire earth, the entire world been communicating to you since you were born? It's that it's not about you. It's like you went to school and you thought you were smart. There was the smart kid in class. And then if you were the smart kid in class, then you graduated, you went to college, and then there was the smart kid in college. And then if you were the smart kid in college, then you went to med school, and then there was the smart kid in med school, right? And, and some of us, here's the thing, we've always been that one in the room, and we're like, you know what, it is kind of about us, and there's going to be a time where you realize it's not about you. And it could be something like stepping in a room and realizing you've been bested, or it could be a phone call from your doctor that tells you that you're sick and you might not make it. And then you realize, I have little control over my life, including when you and I get in our cars later and drive off. It's more risky than flying in a plane. Did you know that? And you and I, even if we're the best drivers and you've taken defensive driving seven times, which I'll ask why, but (laughs) it doesn't matter how defensive you are, something could happen. It's not about us. And so if we try to pattern ourselves after the Kardashians, we're, we're leading ourselves astray and God comes in and says, it's not about you. And hear me on this, that is the most gracious thing our God could do because by freeing you from this life that's all about you, he's also freeing you from trying to define your own existence. In our culture, we have to have this existential worldview that says you have to decide, think about what we do to our kids. Decide who you're gonna be and who you're gonna be is gonna end up you know, defining how valuable you are to everybody around you and how valuable you are to everybody around you is gonna end up uh, you know, speaking to your sense of self, self-worth. And now if you don't have any, enough worth, then you basically are going to what? You need to take these pills to make you feel better because I know you feel terrible and then you're gonna you know, down a trajectory. It's just, it's, it's craziness. We're telling eighth graders, you gotta figure out what you wanna do and you gotta manufacture it. What are you good at? What are you, you know, rather than telling them that you have an identity that was given to you by God, a purpose that was given to you by God, and you're valuable because God created you, and you do not have to manufacture a purpose, you can discover your purpose in the God-man Jesus Christ. And that even when you don't add up and you're not the smartest one in the classroom, it doesn't have to attack your self-worth because you're valued in Christ. I mean, The Bible in the first two verses gives us a hope for life. So what does it mean for us today? Well, I think we have to grapple with this question. All of us are developing a system by which we're living our lives, by which we're making decisions, and by which we're defining things like what is good, what is right, what is true. All of us. You might pretend that you're not. You might just go, that's just not for me. I'm not a philosopher. I don't do that thing. Listen to me. You have to teach your kid. How do, you, how do you tell your kid that this is right or this is wrong unless you already have a basis for that at some level? And you may have developed it on your own or may have inherited from your from your parents or you may have inherited from culture, but nonetheless, you're doing it from somewhere. My con- I would like to contend with you to say you should be inheriting it from God because in all those other places, in the end, is like this pool of ignorance It's like we're all just sitting around and we're drawing from who knows where in order to develop our parenting techniques and you wonder why things go nutty, you know? Rather than going to the one who designed it, who developed the blueprints. You know, the Bible answers some of these major questions of life from the outset. Why are you here? You ever had that one whenever you're like staring at the stars? Why do I exist, you know? 
Because God created you. Oh, who is God? Well, according to this, we have a God who is this sovereign, self-sustaining, powerful, holy, relational, eternal creator of the universe, all in two verses. That's who he is. Whoa. Why did he create us? From two verses. From his love, for his glory and purpose. He loves you. It's about him, and he has purpose for you. And then it brings these open-ended things like, okay, but what is my purpose? Okay, that's a question that is derived from the first two verses that God leaves open-ended so that he can draw you back in and say, come along with me, let's figure it out. He's trying to draw you in to read the rest of the book. He's trying to draw you in to walk with him. He's trying to draw you in to say, here, I can start to teach you some of this stuff, right? And that's, that may sound totally philosophical to you, and in some sense maybe it is, but I think this greatly impacts our boots-on-the-ground decision-making. It greatly impacts the smallest of things that we teach our kids, that we even believe in our own lives. Reading the blueprints of God helps us to make sense of the world. So true crime is a big deal right now. You know, you can look on podcasts like we're all pretty uh, intrigued by it. And I think there's a million reasons why. But I, I also think there's one like baseline reason that, that is true. And I could be wrong about this, so take it for what it's worth. But I think that for the most part, our culture still agrees on this. Murder is a bad thing. And so when we hear a story like this, we're like, man, we got to catch this guy or this gal. But I will admit, most of the time it's a guy. Like there's a few random gals. For most of the time, gals, you freak out, but you don't have to kill people, which I appreciate. And you're like, we need to catch this dude. He needs to be brought to justice. And here's why. I think, I think that we have this sense of that's wrong, that's bad, that's falsehood. That's absurd. This guy named Dennis Prager, uh, some of you may know him. I just read this like briefly. He spent 15 years in like the 90s and 90s asking high school students this question. It was, uh, in an emergency setting, if you had your dog and uh, a stranger that you don't know, in an emergency situation, who would you save? And he said, by and large, most of the high school students said, well, I love my dog. I don't know them. I'd save my dog. Now, you might be thinking, these animals right? Well, who are these kids? I don't know. Are they my kids? You know? But I want to say, what makes the difference in between the two? Like, we, we can all agree that murder is bad, and then this, this uh, here's the biggest question that undergirds both of those. On what basis do we make the decision on what's right and wrong? Seriously, what tells you that when you listen to the true crime podcast, you got to catch that guy, but that you saving, you know, Fido above the, the human being? That's all good. I love them. I don't know that dude. He could be bad. I know Fido's loyal. Here's what I'll say. Well, the book of Genesis says it like this. God said, let us make man in our image. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. On the basis of the very word of God, we would say that human beings have value. It's not that we would not want to grab Fido, and if I could, I would grab my little chubby beagle daisy and a human. But if I had to choose Sophie's choice... I got to go with the human, and the reason is on the basis of God saying, this is my image bearer. And somewhere deep down, even though we have become a culture that calls evil good and good evil, we all know that's true. But it's on the blueprints of God that we can rest. Or, check this out, and this is happening in our culture, perk your ears, we can start calling good evil and evil good in such a way that we become treacherous. We live in an unloving, hateful, evil place where we don't even do basically human things anymore. And we become, listen to me, dehumanized 
And by that, I just mean we become less than human if we don't have the basis upon which things are true. Your kids ask, why, Dad? And you say, because I said so. And then everybody gets chipper in the house, right? No. And yet the Bible says this, God said, and it was so, and he called it good. God said, and it was good, or God said, and it was so, and he called it good. This idea that God's words were authoritative. And one of my hopes as a pastor is that I could live my life and help Christians and non-Christians to see the commands of God, not as God trying to rob you of life, but God trying to give you life. When God says yes to this and no to this, he's trying to give you true life. As a good father would, he's trying to guard you from harm and lead you into life. Guard you from spite and malice and a life of greed and self-indulgence and lead you into generosity and love and care and mutual respect that God is after our life. And so I want to ask you this question in closing. Who is calling the shots in your life? By what standard, men and women, moms and dads, are you leading your household? Whose standard is it? How are you defining goodness? Are you working it out on your own? Are you developing that by yourself? Because here's my fear for you. Usually when you try to do that on your own, the loudest ends up getting what they want. And history proves that the loudest is not always the truth. Or as the Bible records, the crowds say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they were louder than everyone else. (laughs) Might should not make right. Right has been born of God. Christian, have you started to try and develop your own pseudo faith? (laughs) You know, like you've You've grappled with the things of God, but now you kind of want to do it your way. So you got like, uh, I don't know, a little of you, a little of the Bible, a little of Oprah. (laughs) Like a little of Twitter, a little of Fox News, and it's just this stew of your own plans. Because I'm I'm telling you, that's damning. It's going to lead you somewhere you never thought you would go when you're just trying to mix this stew up and that, you know, this is kind of what we are doing. And here's how it manifests itself, and I'm just trying to pastor you, is it happens whenever you've already made your decisions about life, and then you come to your community and say it is what it is. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. When other people try to push back on you, you've already made your decisions on your own. And what we need is each other to bring us back to the word and say, don't run there. That's death. Listen, I'm all about common grace. Every once in a while, Oprah says a smart thing. I just say you got to be rooted in scripture. You got to be rooted in God's truth so that you can spot a fake. Now, here's the thing. God lovingly always calls us back under his gentle, loving, awesome, powerful, honest care. So like even when we stray, and I want to put myself in the we, even when we stray, God, he lovingly brings us back. He, he brings us back because I want to remind you he wants a relationship. And you might be asking, how do I have a relationship? And I'll close with John 1. John chapter 1 mirrors Genesis chapter 1. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the word. Catching this? And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him, without the word, was not anything made that was made. Check out verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of truth but he's also full of grace. 
So if you find yourself listening to this and saying, I don't like that, you have a gracious God who will show you what it looks like to submit under an authority that is unlike the earthly authority that most likely you hate. He calls you to himself. You'll stand to your feet. I'll pray for us. Father, I I know myself, so I know potentially we have a tug at us to pull us out from underneath your authority. We, because of sin, have a bend to try and do what we want more than to trust you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask, would you overcome that resistance that's in us? Would you lovingly call us to yourself, remind us of the gentle, authoritative, powerful care that you exhibit, Lord Jesus? And even so, most importantly, help us to live it out. Help us to build our lives upon your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.